1: This is Sean Azaro and you are listening to the Reaching for Real Life podcast. We have a very special guest today. It's going to be a great program. I want to give as much time as possible to Dr. Bruce Gilley. Dr. Gilley is Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at Portland State University. Now, he wrote a book talking about colonialism. And what maybe we've gotten wrong when it comes to colonialism? The book is called "The Last Imperialist: Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire." And I got to tell you, the the just the premise has gotten so much pushback. And he wrote an article about this a few years back. Got literal death threats. I mean, yeah. so it, it's a it's one of those things where where he makes a. Really powerful point of some of the benefits that nations that were under the British Empire, what they experienced and how those that that kind of were gently transitioned out and got the max benefit really to this day thrive more effectively and better than some of their counterparts so it's controversial to say the least but it's a really great interview interesting book and so we're going to have a conversation with uh dr bruce gilley the book is called last imperialist sir adam burns epic defense of the british empire
0: right here on the reaching for real life podcast
1: well dr gilley thank you for being with us
0: you're most welcome glad to be here
1: uh, your book is called The Last Imperialist, and uh, it's a, a biography of Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire. That's a mouthful. That's a, that's a pretty big title and, and one that I think a lot of people would say is a bit controversial. Uh, tell us why this subject. What gave you the passion to write a book about this?
0: Well, I think I was uh, a political scientist, and I was kind of noticing in a lot of my classes uh, when I was teaching and when I was a grad student student that um, we kind of skated over the colonial period, but every time someone brought up an economic model, um, they always had to remind their, uh, their viewers or their readers that, yeah, well, of course this country's better off because it was a British colony. And they all kind of like skated past that fact. And I, I always came <laughs> right. back and I was like, well, if we know as political scientists and as economists that, uh, you know, being a British colony made you more democratic richer more peaceful than other countries why is it that colonialism has such a bad name and that was kind of the jumping off point for me in getting into this research
1: yeah I think that's uh, that is an amazing point and I think it's one of those things that I think a lot of people would recognize just by looking at the actual current state of different nations but it, that's almost the thing you can't say you talk about you write about critical race theory this is a direct assault to so much of what we're told
0: yeah, in many ways, colonialism is supposed to be exhibit A for critical race theory because critical race theory asserts that uh, European civilization is inherently racist and oppressive, and uh, others and subjugates other peoples. And this kind of the uh, the sort of original sin of the West was colonialism or slavery, take your pick. Um, but they often went together in critical race theory t- telling. So, so if we can undermine this assault on colonialism, we're actually undermining one of the key uh, legs on which critical race theory tries to stand up its insistence about the inherent evil of Western civilization. And, you know, as I show in the book, um, basically colonialism was, in my mind, the greatest anti-racist program in world history, because what the, the task was for colonial governments was to take people who they saw as every bit as human, every bit as full of the potential of human beings as every other people in Europe, and bring to them the blessings of free government, the civic institutions, so they wouldn't have to rely on tribal relationships, uh, the uh, protection of rights for minorities and women. I mean, this was the the great universal template that colonialism brought with it. And it was fundamentally anti-racist in the sense of seeing others as equally uh, having equal potential to live up to those standards as people in, in the West.
1: Critics would push back and say, well, certainly not everybody approached colonialism with that approach. There, was, there were those who tried to take advantage of, the, in their minds, steal resources, what have you. You particularly chose to address this through a biography of Sir Alan Burns. I think it was a great approach because as I've read up on him, he really did have the approach you're talking about
0: yeah so I mean, um, he was the sort of late colonialist period where they're preparing these places for independence where they're trying to put in place some kind of government education system, making sure that they have ability to manage their finances, um, all these things and and yeah, I do like the kind of biographical approach because sometimes we can get caught up in theories and claims and counterclaim, but let 's just look at someone's life and their thinking and Importantly, how the people they worked with responded to them. And you know, by all accounts, Sir Alan Burns was incredibly popular among the people he worked with. I mean, they were so loyal to them that they actually followed him around the world, uh, trying to stay with him. I mean, he was so popular. Um, you know, there's a funny story I tell in the book about uh the uh the a, a UBC University of British Columbia anthropology class in the 1960s. And, and uh, Sir Alan's uh, g- kind of great, great uh, nephew, you know, walks up to an African woman in the class and says, you know, my, uh, my, my great uncle was the governor of uh, of Ghana, where you're from. And uh, this woman says, well, you should be ashamed to be related to that colonial oppressor. Of course the woman goes back for summer holidays to Ghana and is scolded by the elders in Mm. her town and said, what do you mean? We loved Sir Alan. He was like the best governor we've ever had. You go back and apologize to that young man for what you said. So I think there is a kind of generational thing that happened where, you know, that we call these the woke grandchildren, you know, they Mm, just forgot the lessons. They forgot what it was like for those people. And they forgot why colonialism was there and why it was so legitimate with, uh, with the people who, you know, had to face a concrete choice between, you know, rule by the British or rule by our traditional rivals
1: yeah I think you make a great defense because you give some examples just you talk about different nations that that how they dealt with colonialism and how they graduated and grew from that versus those that ended quickly and harshly and the the kind of the the aftermath. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Talk about some of the the nations that you've seen that really have are continue to this day to do better because of that.
0: Well, yeah, just, I mean, look, look who's coming in to our southern border. Is it people from the Bahamas? No. Is it people from Bermuda? Is it people from Barbados? (laughs) Is it people from Belize? No, no. Why? And what's the commonality there? They're all British colonies, right? They're all stable, well governed more or less democratic places. They're coming in from Haiti, which had this anti-colonial revolution, anti-slave revolution very early right. on without any preparations for self-government. They're coming in from Guatemala, which threw off Spanish rule very early on. So there's a very clear relationship between, you know, having had a, a lengthy period of political and economic development under the protection of a liberal state that allowed those institutions to grow and the people that didn't and if you didn't have it, you're far worse off. I mean, the, the evidence of that is unambiguous. When we do the data, when we crunch the numbers, we do the econometric models. It's just very clear that the longer and more intensely you were colonized by a European state, the better off you are today. And that just is a, is a dagger in the heart of yeah. critical race theory yeah. and modern academics.
1: <laughs> and, and it's almost, you know, we, we're not taught that. But when you say it like that, when you talk about our southern border and you list off the nations that aren't having migrants come across our border, it just makes the case. Um, It's
0: the the dog that didn't bark, right? So you need to pay attention to the dog that didn't bark and and who's not at the southern border clamoring to get in. Who's not hanging on to airplanes trying to flee their countries, right? I mean, the the Singaporeans aren't hanging on to the latest, uh, you know, United Air Air flight out of Singapore International Airport. (laughs) Why? Right. Because – they have a great country to live in. Why would why would they seek to flee?
1: Yeah, no, no doubt. Now you'd list pros and cons that uh, Sir Alan Burns saw. Well, what did he? How did he view the opportunities through the colonialism that that, that he was actually part of transitioning from?
0: Well, he saw some things that he thought the British didn't do well. One of them was in the realm of education. And the reason for that was, of course, the missionaries had always taken the lead in education in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East. I mean, the missionaries were there first. The traders and the missionaries were there first. The colonial governments were there second. And one of the consequences of the... You know, quite extensive missionary education systems is the colonial governments came in and said, okay, well, we don't need to do education because that's in the hands of the missionaries. That was probably a mistake because ultimately you needed a public education system mm-hmm. to train civil servants um, and to create education systems that were viable, sustainable, all that. So he he was a critic of the educational efforts. He was also a critic of the sort of uh, balanced budget orthodoxy that the British imposed on their colonies uh, this came was a, came you know out of Victorian England. I mean balanced budget was the orthodoxy. He thought that they should have done more to help the financial and fiscal situations, but overall, he thinks the record is excellent I improved health outcomes, improved life expectancy. Uh, booming populations, which shows, right, life's getting better. Um, the creation of democratic governance, um, the rule of law, private property rights, all this stuff came. And so, you know, I, I don't like to say it's a, it's, a, it's a cost benefit because I think even the educational efforts of the missionaries were better than the educational efforts of what would have been there otherwise. So yeah. um, but but he does think they did some things better than others. And, uh, you know, he was there to see the consequences of terminating colonial rule suddenly, Um, and it was not pretty.
1: I think one of the things people forget is that it was missionaries who were the front line and that the motivation was simply evangelism, the spread of the gospel, which obviously as a pastor is near and dear to my heart. Some people look at that as as a type of oppression, but the bottom line is you see the change in people's life when the gospel comes in, you change people's lives, when the things that accompany the gospel, how families are treated, how work ethic, all the different things that come with that sir alan burns is a really interesting story and his take is unique why do you think he's kind of gone unnoticed up to this point
0: well obviously he's kind of a you know he's not the sort of people that the academy celebrates these days so uh i tracked right. down his family and i was surprised to find all of his papers all of his memos secret telegrams from mi5 uh, uh you know internal documents from when he was in the united nations just sitting in an attic in this house in the north of England and and this guy's life just untouched uh, they don't like the fact that he was a colonial official. they don't like the fact that he was a a devout Catholic, uh, mm-hmm. which he was, and his his faith was very important to him. I think it stirred up his courage in some very dangerous situations, such as when he fought in World War one uh, when he got sent into difficult situations um, and uh he he was you know I think what they also don't like is they don't like the, To be reminded of the fact of how popular Christianity was and is in Africa today, you know, that that legacy is strong and vibrant. And there's also some very interesting work in political science on the importance of missionary presence for democratic development and uh, very interesting research being done that suggests that actually the, the missionary influence was actually more positive for democracy than being a colony. So in terms mm. of what was doing the work, you know, of actually developing democratic norms, democratic practices, people who wanted to participate in civic life and, and, and make a difference, the missionaries actually seem to have done more of that work than the colonial governments did. And that's a, you know, yeah. that's a legacy that the, the current academy doesn't want to hear about, right? It's just, see, I don't want to hear about it. Cover my ears. I don't want to hear about it. No matter how plain the evidence is staring it in the you in the face.
1: Well, and we, we have people complain that churches are tax exempt or church properties are tax exempt they, and they wonder why that is. And I'm like, that is a direct <laughs> relation back to how governments early on saw the benefit of the church, how Christianity, when it says, you know, t- turn the other cheek, when it says love your neighbor, when it says he who doesn't work should not eat. Those are all beneficial teachings that make people better citizens. And I think the same is true in the in the colonies that you're talking about.
0: Well yeah and don 't forget I mean the mission stations were often basically um survival places i mean I mean if you were uh, if you got sick in traditional African society, your family would throw you into the jungle because they didn't want to i mean threaten the group and you'd be devoured by lions. Well, mm-hmm. the missions would take you in and save you if you were a slave who had been freed or, or gotten rid of, the missions would take you in. When there was a food shortage, the missions had food, right? So there was a, there was a very practical role they were playing as well, a kind of social welfare function, but of course a, a function that was motivated by a strong belief in the universality of God's imprint on man, yeah. on the, the calling to serve others and to love others. I mean, this was all kind of, one of the reasons the mission spread was, you know, yes, they, they represented literacy, they represented um, um, you know coming together but they also provided you know public goods basically that no one else was providing Mm. Uh, how did you how did
1: you go about researching this i mean the the story of burns is really interesting how did you you say you were in an attic with a bunch of stuff how did you end up there
0: yeah, white well, as a picture on my on the homepage for the for the book of, of all these papers spread out all over this living room in the, in the ta- in the town where uh, the family that kept the records was. Um, I mean, I tracked them down through a genealogy website basically, and then really, uh, and and then the doors just opened. It was just one of these projects. I did feel like the hand of God moving me. You know, just everything was open, open, open. Every door I pushed opened up. Um, it so happened that one of his great granddaughters is a trained archivist. And I needed an archivist to go into the public records office in London to go through some of the colonial records. And and there she is ready, Mm. ready to go. And uh, so, uh, so there's a lot of spade work with his papers, a lot of archival work, um, some work at the UN, some work in the State Department, um, and then also trying to connect with people he'd worked with who still remembered him. And you know what a shocker to discover that uh this guy's reputation just has outlasted him he is mm. still remembered fondly yeah. he's almost become mythic in some of the places he worked he's so so popular and of course this is a story that they didn't want out this is why the book got banned from its original academic publisher and luckily was picked up by regnery and uh, is finally seeing the light of day
1: yeah that's interesting the what, the reaction you've gotten you know uh among academics among scholars kind of that there's that kind of on a spectrum how how would you describe that
0: uh well i think the reaction has been a disgrace for the academy and yeah. for people who study colonial history and uh of course lots of exceptions there's a lot of people who've come to my defense and 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 made this case and there is now actually a a group in uh, britain called history reclaimed which is trying to just build back accurate descriptions of British history, just as, let's say, the 1776 commission that President Trump set up in his dying days was trying to push back about creating an accurate account of American history. So, you know, there's some, some counter movements, but the mainstream academic response was well, we don't say anything nice about colonialism and we certainly don't say anything nice about colonial officials anymore. Right. Um, and this person, you know, Bruce Gilley is clearly out of sync with the times. I mean, what time capsule did he crawl out of? I mean, nobody has said this kind of thing for 60 years. How did he get a job? You know? Um, I mean, he should be fired. I mean, he's, uh, um, he's, 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 uh, cover for white supremacy. You know know all the kind of things you hear. And it just becomes like, wow. Um, Then what what I really have enjoyed is people from the colonies, Africans, Indians, uh, Arabs, writing essays and saying, yeah, no, we don't need... The protection of white film studies professors telling us what we can and cannot read and what we're supposed to think about our colonial histories. We have these debates all the time. Many people in our countries think it was great. Many think it was bad. That's normal everyday talk and discussion right. for us. We don't, we don't need American academics censoring and controlling our history. Uh, so, you, so you academics are actually the colonialists uh, yeah. trying to shut down the debate.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly right. And you would think that academics would know better than to try to make things so one-dimensional and simple, because the, the, of course, through colonialism, there were hurtful things that happened. Because people are sinful. Any government creates hurtful things. But if you can't acknowledge the benefits and the the legacies that were built that were helpful and the empowerment that did happen in certain places and in certain times then I think you're just being dishonest.
0: Right, every governance system is imperfect, and I've I've never uh, yet seen a perfect governance system. I guess I'll see one when I die, um, but I'm not <laughs> expecting to see one on this earth. And the fact is, of course, colonial rule, governing billions of people over hundreds of years in 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 dozens of different contexts, there was abuse, there was corruption, there was excessive violence, there was police misconduct, of course. But but that tells us nothing about the, the big question, which is basically. Were these societies better off having been colonized right. than had they not been colonized? And that to me is an unambiguous yes. I mean, it it even I think I mean, it's easy to make that case for the British Empire. So I think it's it's it's, it's a no brainer with the British Empire. But I actually, you know, would make that case for the French, for the Portuguese, for the Germans uh, mm. that that faced very difficult situations, very different situations because they yeah. were often latecomers um, and, you know, basically left left by and large good legacies. Um, and I often say to some of my academic friends, well, you know, so you told me you think that colonialism was oppressive, exploitative and violent. Um, do you think our contemporary American government is exp- oppressive, uh, exploitative and violent? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's just as bad. And I'm like, OK, well, that's yeah. that's all I needed to know, yeah. because what that shows me is you have absolutely no way. To actually do the hard work of history, which is to yeah. put things in context and judge things relative to what was feasible, what was available.
1: Yeah, you you talk a lot about faith in your book, and and was Burns a man of faith? Was he a was he a believer?
0: Yeah, well, he's a he's a devout Catholic. Um, he, he has a funny story because he grew up in the in the uh, British Caribbean, and uh, the only reason his. Uh, his grandfather converted to Catholicism is because he wanted to marry a French woman and, and the French, the French side of the family couldn't marry a non-Catholic. So the whole, the whole Burns family converted to Catholicism, uh, became Catholics. I would say his Catholicism was very ecumenical um, throughout. And then, but, but, you know, everywhere he went, there was a Catholic church, there was a cathedral. He, he was, uh, he was a, um, uh, regular participant at mass. Um, and I, and I do think he, Made a lot of friendships through his faith, um, and not just through his his own church but through the Protestant churches and the places where he worked um, and he and he does talk a lot in his uh, in his memoirs and his papers you know about um, you know what are we called to do what What are we called to do when we 're put in a situation where we have people who don 't look like us uh, don't don't don 't eat like us right well we 're called to, to rise above that we 're called to see the universal imprint of god he talks a lot about that that clearly mm. was a motivation for him for him you know his faith and his participation in colonialism were of a piece you know th- right. this was this was this was god's mission uh he saw the good he saw the bad he called it out uh, he was a man of integrity i guess i would mm. say and um and i think part of his passion was uh was this belief in you know this mattered beyond just being a good bureaucrat, being a good colonial official, being mm. a policymaker. This this had a, this had a higher purpose. When he died uh, in 1980, his funeral was at Westminster Cathedral, which is the Great Catholic Cathedral mm. in London, and uh, the kind of who's who of the colonial world, circa 1980. Showed up and it was a, it was a, I've, I've seen the the program from the from the funeral mass that was held and it was a kind of celebration not just of his life but of the but of the project that he had served so loyally.
1: He was pro British Empire. He saw the good outweigh the bad of the British Empire. How did the British Empire deal with religions that were outside of Christianity? Because in in these colonies, that's what they encountered. How did they deal with that?
0: Well, th- th- I think the criticism for, from the Christians was that they were nicer to non-Christians than they were to the Christians. Uh, Uh, That's still true.
1: That's still true. Yeah,
0: the colonial colonial officials were, uh, you know, the the people who served in the colonies were often these kind of uh, orientalists, for lack of a better word. You know, they were so interested in these local cultures, and they were really annoyed by the missionaries and the Christian churches, you know, changing things. They they had some often kind of went, it's called, you know, they went native, right? They took such an interest in the (laughs) local cultures and the preservation of them that they wanted to keep, christianity out i mean the the british famously prohibited missionaries from any area of northern nigeria because it was the muslim part of nigeria and they said we we want to protect islam from christianity and so that's a no-go area they did that in many places in india too so the the you know british colonial officials were actually very uh even-handed in their own views, um, in terms of managing, uh, making sure religions were kind of treated equally. No one was favored. Um, There was certainly no established church in the colonies. That was never the case. Uh, And they often, if anything, had more tense relationships with the Christians than they did with the non-Christians. The non-Christians, of course, saw their faiths flourish for the first time, because for the first time they were living in in a system that allowed Religious freedom that protected people from violence based on their faith. This was kind of the same reason why colonists came to the United States to escape religious persecution is the same reason why colonialism spread, because it's it allowed people to practice their faiths in peace Um, and Christian missionaries. uh, I mean, I I would say the Protestants had had a better shake than the Catholics who still had this sort of remnant suspicion towards them but but really the only protestants the colonials really liked were the established protestant churches they dis- disliked <laughs> the evangel- evangelists you know going into the bush um, right. so you know if anything that's a vindication of colonial governance that they were they they were not at all favored towards Christian faiths
1: yeah uh, this is a very countercultural view right now with critical race theory being such a dominant kind of Message and a and a just talking point in our culture. You this has to be something that I, I think it's an important read for
0: people. It is countercultural, uh, at least in our culture. I mean, as I say, pe- people who are in the former colonies will see this book and they'll say, "Yeah, we we talk about this all the time." Well, you know, my husband thinks exactly like Professor Gilly. My wife <laughs> thinks opposite. You know, this is this is normal debate. Uh, we've kind of. Uh, uh, I think, develop this kind of cringe about the word colonialism. You know, you say colonialism and, you know, I mean, people are supposed to like kind of shrink down, like you've said, you know, Darth right. Vader or something, and this is supposed to be a, a bad word. And and that's just a kind of, I think it's a product of, of bad education in yeah. the West in the last 50 years and a, and a loss of, under, of historical understanding. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, what does it mean to be, a dissident and a counterculturalist these days. It means someone who, who who is talking about the good side of colonialism.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Well, you've received uh, you've received a lot of pushback, even death threats, but yet you continue. You wrote the book. <laughs>
0: Yeah, my, uh, well, this book was canceled once, uh, by an academic mob and petition campaign and was picked up by Regnery. So I'm very grateful to them for doing that. They have become one of the go-to places for canceled books, uh, banned books, so to speak. In fact, it was funny because the, um, American booksellers associations having their banned books week and, you know, none of the books (laughs) they include are the ones that actually were banned, which I, I like this one. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, this was just the the latest iteration of attempts to cancel me Uh, my original article, The Case for Colonialism is the one that led to death threats and withdrawal of that article Uh, my faculty union issued uh, essentially a fatwa against me they don't call it a fatwa, but I called it a fatwa saying that my research on colonialism was uh, obnoxious and didn't deserve academic freedom so, uh, you know, but sometimes this kind of pushback is an indicator that you're doing something right Yeah.
1: No, I think that's a great point the book is called The Last Imperialist Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire. Where can people get it?
0: Uh, it's on Amazon, and of course, you can get it from the uh, Regnery.com website.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gilly. We are very, very grateful, and we wish you all the best. The book actually comes out today, correct? Correct. This is the day. Excellent. Well, I hope you have a great uh, release, and uh, hope to get to talk to you again soon. Thank you. You too. Thank you, sir.